If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the mid-19th century, a civil war raged in the United States. A cohort of European royals joined forces with exiled Mexican conservatives to try and install a young Austrian archduke as the emperor of Mexico. At the centre of what would become an imperialist disaster was Ferdinand Maximilian, a second son in the royal house of Habsburg, who assumed this faraway throne. Historian Edward Shawcross has written a new book on the story, The Last Emperor of Mexico, and joined digital editor Eleanor Evans to discuss this ill-fated episode. Your book is about an extraordinary attempt to establish a European emperor of Mexico, a second son of the Austrian Habsburgs, during a time when the American Civil War was raging. And it's a story with long, long roots and a really, really fascinating one. And I wonder if we could start by hearing from you on um, Mexico's situation in the early to mid-1800s and what had happened in the region since independence. Absolutely. Well, the short answer to Mexico's situation in the mid-19th century is that it's not very good. Mexico becomes independent in 1821, but is plagued by instability Political violence especially, uh, much more important than the ballot box in determining who's going to be in power. Now, so far, that's not too different to most other Latin American countries who struggle after independence. And in fact, 
if you um, want an incredibly difficult mental challenge, then try and memorize every single Mexican president from 1824 to 1861. If you include the interim presidents and the presidents who are not recognized by other presidents, it's a Sisyphean task, I can assure you, having tried to do it myself. But what sets Mexico apart from other Latin American countries, at least one of the things, is its proximity to the United States of America. Now, the the first sort of crisis in in Mexican um, foreign policy terms is the loss of Texas uh, in 1835. There's a revolt. um, Texas is part of Mexico. It rebels against the center and actually becomes an independent republic. In 1845, that republic is annexed to the United States of America, much to the annoyance of, 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 of all Mexicans. And in 1846, the war is declared and the United States of America invades Mexico. Now, this is a disastrous conflict from the Mexican perspective. The Mexican army loses every major conflict that that it engages in, doesn't win a single battle. Uh, And within a year, U.S. troops occupied a capital city. The Stars and Stripes unfurled across the magnificent main square of Mexico City. And it's it's a national catastrophe, as you can, can well imagine. Now, U.S. troops do eventually leave, but only at an extraordinarily high price. There's a treaty signed in 1848. Mexico gets $15 million, um, which sounds like a lot. Um, it's not, especially when you consider um, what they've given up. They've given up places like California, New Mexico, but also parts of Nevada, Arizona. Up to about half of Mexico's territory is seized by the United States of America as a consequence of this disastrous war. So the 1850s context, which is really important for our story, is dominated by that national trauma, that disaster. And the response is not what you might hope. Mexicans sort of rally together. Uh, in the face of US aggression, but actually it becomes incredibly divisive. Now, the politics is confusing, but you can simplify it down into two very broad coalitions, liberals and conservatives. They are not political parties in today's sense, as I say, very, very broad, very loose coalitions, but they do have some shared ideas in common. And they both have a response to the US invasion, but the response is very different. So liberals argue that the reason why Mexico was catastrophically defeated in the way that it was is because it's backwards. It's not liberal enough. It's not a modern nation state, and it needs to be drastically reformed. Their principal target here is the Catholic Church, Now, the Catholic Church is enormously powerful in Mexico. It's a a Catholic country. It's been there since um, colonization way back in the 16th century. It's also the biggest landowner. It has enormous political and economic power as a consequence, and beyond the fact that it's the the, the one true faith, so Catholics would argue. Now, the property that it's owned is owned in perpetuity. Now, that's that's a red rag to any liberal ball, right? You can't buy and sell church property on the open market. So the liberals think, well, ha ha, here's a short and easy win. Uh, we can attack the power of the church and undermine it by nationalizing church property and selling it as private property on the open market. Now, for conservatives, this proves what they've long believed, which is that liberals are impious, um, potentially even atheists, because their response to the US invasion is not that Mexico is, is a backwards nation that's not modern enough. It's, in fact, that it's gone back on its what you might call traditional values. In fact, the one thing that conservatives uh, believe is binding Mexico loosely together is the Catholic Church. So you've got a war of ideas here over the future of Mexico and how to respond to that invasion. Um, It very quickly becomes an actual war um, um, based on those ideas. In 1855, liberals sweep to power um, violently um, uh, again. And this time, there have been previous liberal regimes in Mexico, um, but they've been very moderate. 
This time, they are determined to transform Mexico. And the key reform here is nationalization of church property. Now, this is something that had happened in other countries. It happened during the French Revolution. So it's not unheard of. But in a very Catholic country like Mexico, um, for conservatives, it, it's anathema to their, to their vision. It's, it's, as I say, it's seen as an impious assault. And key amongst these liberals is a guy called Benito Juarez, who's going to become much more important in our story. What he tries to do alongside his, his, his other politicians is codify these reforms, these secular liberal reforms in a constitution in 1857. And for conservatives, what's the most egregious thing about this constitution is actually what it doesn't say. I mean, they don't like what it does say. But they really don't like what it doesn't say, because all other constitutions in Mexico had put Catholicism front and center, the sole religion to the exclusion of all others, i.e. no religious tolerance. This one doesn't mention it uh, at all. And therefore, conservatives think this is a process to to create that, that secular Republican government, which they think will actually lead to the collapse of Mexican society and potentially further US involvement. So when this constitution is about to come into effect, they launch coup d'etat, um, they put one of their own men into power, and that results in a three-year civil war. Benito Juarez on one side fighting for, 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 the, for liberal reforms, the constitution. He sets up his government in Veracruz, uh, which is the principal Atlantic port, a gateway into Mexico. In Mexico City, conservatives hold power, um, and eventually one of their own comes, a uh, sort of dashing young army officer, a guy called Miguel Miramon, they fight this, this quite epic three-year conflict, um, which ends in 1861 with Juarez victorious, he enters Mexico City, he has elections, and he's elected constitutional president. And really, our story should end there. Um, but there's a, there's a sort of outrageous and an interesting coda to this civil war, which is this, this, this idea of monarchy. Right. Well, that's a fantastic introduction to that um, tumult going on in Mexico. But I think before we do get into this um, this plan, I think some important context, context to perhaps add here is that the issues brewing in the USA as well, issues that will shortly lead to the American Civil War. How does this play into um, th- this time frame here? Well, absolutely. So I'll just I'll take you back to that idea of monarchy and, and then I'll uh, talk about the US context, which is you say crucial. So what I didn't tell you about Mexican independence is that another um, thing that sets Mexico apart from other Latin American nations um, is that it becomes independent as a monarchy. Brazil also does so. Uh, In Mexico, there's um, a military leader called uh, Augustin de Itubide. He is actually a Spanish royalist, switches sides. He'd been fighting against Spain, switches sides and unites all of those people fighting for independence behind a plan. Now, his plan is very simple. Mexico should be an independent monarchy, but ruled by either the Spanish king, Ferdinand VII, or one of his um, family members. Now, of course, Ferdinand VII is a Spanish king, um, one of the most incompetent monarchs, I think, in the 19th century. And that's a, that's a, that's a very competitive field. He refuses this outright. Um, so you're left with a monarchy without a monarch. Itzabide's solution is to crown himself emperor of Mexico. Uh, at this stage, the empire just means state. So the Mexican empire is not an empire that controls overseas territory. It's just a state with a monarch. That monarch is Itzabide. His reign is incredibly short. Within months, he's, he's deposed, abdicates, and actually comes back and, and gets shot, which um, you know, could have been a warning, potentially. And so this idea of monarchy never goes away in Mexico because there, there are an increasing number of people who think the solution to Mexico's instability is to get back to the original idea of independence, which was to have a monarchy, and actually creating a republic with a president, which happens in 1824, that's the original sin of Mexican politics from which all other problems come. So monarchy, for for a small number, it's not big, but they are influential in the Conservative Party, think that monarchy is the solution. Now, when the Conservatives lose the Civil War, many of them flee exile to to Europe, um, and they 
managed to get the ear of one of the most powerful men in the world, Napoleon III. He's the emperor of the French. He's the nephew of um, the uh, more famous Napoleon Bonaparte. And he comes to power in 1852 and he rules um, France as an empire. They, um, through his wife, actually, they managed to get right into the heart of the French court. And they, they sort of they, they talk to him and they say, well, you know, there's plenty of support in Mexico for monarchy. Juarez is a, is a despot. No one likes him. So if you back this plan, it's going to be it's going to be an easy win. Now, Napoleon III is, you know, he's a man who's always looking for glory, but he says something slightly ersatz about the Second Empire, and glory on the cheap is, is the best type of glory um, for the likes of Napoleon III. And so this seems, this seems to him like an, a, you know, a brilliant plan. He can, he can roll back U.S. expansion in, in, in North America, something that he's, um, he's concerned with because he believes that there is a kind of confraternity between Latin nations and the Mexico and Catholicism have been, have been under um, attack. But this is where that U.S. context is absolutely key, because as one civil war ends in Mexico, another one in North America begins. I'm sure listeners will be aware. And of course, that's the American Civil War. So the United States of America is torn in two between the Confederacy um, fighting to maintain the institution of slavery and the Union fighting to maintain the Union. And of course, um, eventually, not initially, but eventually to abolish slavery. Now, there's no way that had the United States of America not been embroiled in this conflict, that Napoleon III um, would ever have sent French troops into Mexico. There's a sort of foundational document, um, well, not document, but doctrine of US foreign policy called the Monroe Doctrine. And that is that no European interference um, in the Americas, right, not in internal politics. So sending troops into another country to overthrow that government and found not just any any type of government, but a monarchy, right? The very the very system of government that the United States of America is founded against is something that Washington is going to seriously oppose. But it can't, because in 1861, as this plot is blueing, conspiracy is bubbling in Europe. It's it's as I say, it's it's locked in its own existential struggle for, for survival. Napoleon III is is sympathetic, not ideologically, but in terms of foreign policy, to the Confederacy. He's he's making noises, uh, talking to Palmerston, the British Foreign Secretary, about perhaps we should recognise the Confederacy, perhaps we should even get involved in this conflict. So President Lincoln and his Secretary of State, William Seward, are very wary about any serious opposition to this French um, intervention, which is what it becomes. So that US context is key. It doesn't happen without the US civil war. Okay, so that's that sets us up um, brilliantly to talk about uh, what happens next. So we've got this plan by some exiled Mexican conservatives and, and Napoleon III. And who is their candidate? Right. Well, so I mean, there are there are many problems with the plan, right? The Mexicans themselves are not powerful enough to implement it in Mexico. Otherwise, they would have done it before, right? And they did actually try in the mid nineties. It doesn't work. So they need a they need a powerful backer, and they, and, and you know they find a, a, a willing. Um, a willing, um, you know, practitioner in Napoleon III, if that's the right phrase. But also, you need you need a monarch, right? You can have a monarch. You need a monarch, and who's going to accept it? Now, if you know your Napoleonic history, you'll know that relations between uh, the Napoleons and the, the royal houses of France, there's two, the Bourbons and the Julia Branch, this is, is is not positive. There's no way you can have a French monarch. Uh, that would be absurd. Uh, now, Spain are quite interested in this idea. They think, well, you know, perhaps we could have a Spanish monarch in, a, in, in Mexico. That would sort of bring us back to, to glory. But Mexican monarchists are aware, even though that they look quite fondly on the colonial past, that so that legacy is toxic. There's no way that a Spanish monarch can turn up in Mexico after what's happened in the wars of independence. But the monarch needs to be Catholic. So, um, Partially, the reason why they uh, alight upon a person they do is that their, their options are fairly limited. But they, the good news for them is there is a Catholic monarchy at the heart of Europe, and that is the Habsburgs. 
And the Habsburgs have a connection to Mexico because it's first conquered under the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who also happens to be King of Spain. So there's a Habsburg connection, and there's also a Habsburg who's very interested in the job. His name is Ferdinand Maximilian. Younger brother is Franz Josef, who in 1848 becomes Emperor of Austria. And now that's a big turning point in the two brothers' relationship. Before that, they'd been very close. They'd grown up, obviously, together in, in imperial palaces in Vienna. But when Franz Josef becomes Emperor, that relationship changes. Franz Joseph, and it's also because their personality is very different. Franz Joseph is incredibly rigid, conservative, and quite dull, frankly, individual. I think if you're at a dinner party with him, you, you, you would be very keen to change places. But he's all very autocratic and conservative. Maximilian has, has, has developed liberal sympathies. He loves the, um, the exotic. He loves travel. He's, he's very keen on becoming a naval officer, which he does. I think people often very dismissively call him a dilettante. Um, he is a dilettante, but he's interested in things. So he's a, he's a, you know, he writes poetry. It's, it's not awful. He is a, is a sort of amateur botanist and scientist. And, um, you know, you'd have a much better conversation with him. And you could have conversed with him in one of the 10 languages that he spoke as well. So he's not, you know, he's not without intelligence and charm. But his big thing is his Habsburg past. Right? He's absolutely obsessed by it. Uh, and it's you can go to his castle. He built a castle near Trieste, which is then in the uh, Austrian Empire, overlooking the Adriatic called Miramar. And it's a, it's a bit like going around a sort of, you know, various um, elaborately decorated teenagers' bedrooms. It's, it's all decked out in Habsburg paraphernalia. He's got, every, you know, the banisters have got Habsburg emblems. Uh, the fountains have got Habsburg's, uh, you know, sort of um, inscriptions and things like that. But as the younger brother, the second son, there's actually four brothers, so he's the second, second son of, of, he's never ever going to in, inherit power, certainly not by the time that Franz Joseph himself has, has a child in the, in the mid-1850s. But Maximilian believes that he is destined to rule. He believes he's talented. He believes that he has the ability to do far greater things than his brother, that he would be much more liberal, much more enlightened. And his brother is actually very wary of his popularity because there are plenty of people in the Habsburg Empire who think that an outgoing, um, intelligent, more liberal ruler might be what they need. So he's kept at a distance by Franz Joseph. And um, the thing that sort of steals that ambition, so I say he's a man who does a lot of things. He's writing poetry, he's, he's cataloging he's cataloging plants and things like that. What steals him is, um, steals his ambition is his marriage. So he's on a diplomatic mission for his brother to Brussels, and there he meets Charlotte, Princess Charlotte of Belgium. Now, she's much better known to Mexican history as Carlotta, um, you know, which is you know, the, the Spanish version of Charlotte. Who is she? Daughter of the King of Belgium. She's very young when she meets him, 16, but she's swept off her feet. Uh, Maximilian, as I say, he's, he's been a naval officer, he's travelled the Mediterranean, he's been to places like Egypt, and he's got, she's a precocious student, she reads a lot, but she's seen very little. So when Maximilian kind of um, comes into the Belgian court, he's striking appearance, six foot, blonde hair, blue eyes. She immediately thinks, well, this is my ticket out of here, and hopefully to a position of power, because she is also equally ambitious. Now, Maximilian briefly appointed to position of power. He becomes governor of a province of the Austrian Empire, Lombardy Venetia. That ends in disaster uh, and humiliation and war. He's actually sacked by his brother, um, which, you know, if he didn't like his brother before then, this just proves that his brother is woefully incompetent um, and will never give him the position that he desires. So you've got an intelligent man, but frustrated, uh, equally intelligent wife and ambitious, equally frustrated by their lack of opportunity. So in 1861, when you've got Mexican conspirators uh, who come to him with this plan, he's absolutely intoxicated with it. He thinks that this is his ticket out of his sort of humdrum existence in Europe. And the fact that it's got the backing of one of the most powerful rulers 
of France means that it seems entirely plausible that, that this, this throne, even though it doesn't exist yet, right, might be something that he can do. So he accepts the offer, but with conditions, and is looking forward to, to ruling a, a bright future um, in Mexico. Now, I keep saying the problem, um, there are many problems. And as I say, one of the key problems is that this monarchy doesn't exist yet. This is an imaginary throne that he's conditionally accepted. Now, Napoleon III thinks it's going to be extremely easy to do, right? Part of the reason why he, he does it. And he doesn't think it's going to be, uh, 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 it's going to happen overnight, but he bases it on two things. One, the Mexican conspirators, the exiles from the Conservative Party, tell him, well, there's plenty of support for monarchy in Mexico. The French will turn up and be welcomed as liberated. Now, he's not naive enough to believe that wholesale, but he also thinks, look at the US experience. The US invades Mexico with very few troops, really, that, that work their way up from Veracruz to the capital, probably about 12,000. And they, you know, they take it within months. So he's thinking, well, even if there isn't this popular claim for monarchy, what I've got that the United States of America definitely didn't have is some support. So the French army will be in Mexico City, you know, within months. That is not what happens. The French army marches um, in 1862, only 6,000 men, which gives you an indication of, of, of how, um, of the kind of force that Napoleon III thinks he can get away doing this with, to Puebla the second city of Mexico, a key spot on the route to Mexico, the capital city. 5th of May, the army deploys in front of the city. Now, the French general shares many of the, of the racist attitudes that Europeans harbored at the time for people outside of Europe. He thinks that the French army, the victors of the Crimean War, they've also defeated Austria in 1859, will, you know, with ease, triumph and, and take the city. So he launches a frontal attack on one of the main forts guarding the entrance to the city and wave after wave of French um, infantry is cut down by the Mexican army, which, which um, heroically resists. And after hours of these futile attacks, the French general has to sound the retreat and France has been defeated. And it's worth stopping a moment to, to think about just how extraordinary that, that is for a European army to be defeated outside of Europe. Uh, and it's a, it's a moment that's gone down in Mexican history, rightly so, as Cinco de Mayo, which is often sometimes mistaken for sort of a Mexican independence holiday. It's not. It's to commemorate this battle on the 5th of May. Now, I, I sort of, again, I thought I'm going to say this is where our story should end because Napoleon III should have realised that whatever it was going to take to, to, to establish this monarchy, it was not going to be easy. But of course, you're, you, know, you're, you, may, you may only be a nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, but the French army is engaged, the honour of France. This is the words that he uses. And so he sends reinforcements. It's right this time, we're going to do it properly. By the end of 1862, you've got 30,000 French troops in Mexico, which is a huge number um, for uh, for conflict in, in Latin America, uh, right? And when we're talking about the Civil War, we're, we're talking about numbers of the Mexican Civil War, it's numbers a lot, lot lower than that in, in any one engagement. Even with these numbers, it's not easy. Puebla does not fall until May 1863, over a year after the first defeat. They're not in Mexico City until the summer of 1863. So this is a year and a half after French troops landed in Mexico. And it's not until uh, May of 1864 that Maximilian even gets to Mexico. So there's, there's nearly three years before he's offered the throne, conditionally accepts it, and then eventually arrives in Mexico. And if that uh, sort of accession isn't expected, their arrival in Mexico isn't what they expect either, is it? Absolutely not. So... <laughs> Napoleon III, he's a man who loves conspiracies, back channels, uh, and you know, he's a chain smoker. So you can sort of see him in various opulent villas plotting um, schemes. And one of the things that he does very well is mislead Maximilian. Although 
you get the sense that Maximilian was happy to be misled. And so he tells Maximilian that the country is pacified, in inverted commas. So this is the French euphemism for brutal counterinsurgency tactics, and that all is well and that he's been popularly acclaimed. In fact, they organised a, a uh, what in the best, you know, they call a plebiscite, um, in, is, is far from it. But it's a semblance of a democratic vote, which says, five million Mexicans have acclaimed your emperor. I mean, that's nonsense. They've just counted up. Uh, people in various places that the French army occupied. And, and this, if they had been asked, they would have said yes, but we don't need to really. So he thinks it, he thinks it's much, it's in a much better situation than it is. But the first, you know, the first signs that all is not well is actually at the landing at, at Veracruz. So again, the, the, the main port of Mexico on the Atlantic side. He gets there on the 28th of May, 1864, and as they look out onto Mexico, their kingdom for the first time, Maximilian and Carlotta, it, they just see the docks are empty. There's no one there to welcome them. There's no cheering crowds, nothing. Uh, it turns out that the welcome committee, who should have provided that, they got the day wrong. So, you know, the administration's not, not going great there anyway. And because Veracruz, it's, yellow fever is endemic. It's known as the charnel house of, of Europeans because when travelers come to Mexico, there's this huge risk of contracting yellow fever, and which is... Disease, a horrible disease, and one with a very high mortality rate. So the welcome committee is is sort of many hours away up in the hills where it's a bit safer. They, they get there, and then it's too late to disembark. They decide they'll disembark in the in the early hours of the morning. So they sort of rode in the twilight dawn into into Veracruz, but still the streets are deserted, partially because I imagine you know who wants to get up to welcome a, a foreign ruler at, at five in the morning, but also because Veracruz had been the seat of Juarez's liberal government. Right? These are not people who've looked on with enormous joy as the French have invaded and overturned the constitutional elected president. So it's it's there's an eerily silent drive through the streets of Veracruz to to this uh, rickety railway station, which the French bought to. Try transport troops into the interior. It only goes 70 miles and certainly not what you'd expect for royalty. Now, the stage-managed progression to the capital does improve, uh, and it does, to some extent, banish doubts. And there is a magnificent reception in Mexico City. You can debate how orchestrated that was or how spontaneous it was. I mean, one thing worth bearing in mind is that um, Juarez has not been defeated. Mexico is huge. It's, I think, four times larger than France, um, which I always think is a big country anyway. Maybe that's just my limited horizons. Um, Paris is just retreating northwards um, in the face of the French army. So all of the liberals, or not all, but many of them, certainly high-ranking liberals and, and Juaristas, as Juarez's supporters are known, have abandoned the capital, right? So I think that that, that demonstration of welcome for Maximilian is probably fairly, fairly, I mean, it is orchestrated, but there's some um, genuineness to it as well. But that's, he's confronted with problems three principal problems. So the first we've already mentioned, Juarez is not defeated. So for much of Mexico, there is a legitimate president and an illegitimate emperor, Maximilian. Juarez is retreating northwards uh, in the face of advancing armies, but he's not being defeated. The second problem is that the finances of Maximilian's regime are precarious, to say the least. Now, that's been true of all Mexican regimes. Only one government in, in independent history of Mexico up until this point uh, ever managed to, to, to bring in more money than it spent. But Maximilian's problems are exacerbated. Not least, he doesn't control the territory of Mexico, right? He controls the center um, and a sort, of, um, a, a sort of ribbon of towns towards Veracruz. But outside of that, um, either there, it, there's, there's no control or it's, it's, it's under the control of, of Juarez, but also... Napoleon III's um, idea for this scheme is essentially what I think today would call a leverage buyout. He has outsourced the conquest of Mexico to the Mexican government that he set up. So Maximilian signs a treaty, and in that treaty, he, he agrees to monthly payments to keep the French army in Mexico. And they are 
the, the French don't come cheap. If you're looking to, to hire an army in the 19th century, um, you know, there are other options available. The French one is, is expensive. He's also taken out enormous loans in Europe, raised on the money markets of London and Paris to cover immediate expenditure. But that adds enormously to his debt. So he's got, uh, he's got an undefeated enemy, precarious finances, and the United States of America is hostile to his regime. Now, in 1864, that may not be the problem that it's, it, it's become because the civil war is still raging. But it's certainly not the job description as he read it back in Europe. It's, it's, he's got a lot of challenges. Uh, right. And, and another factor that um, perhaps we could chat about as well is is his own character. I think, is it fair to say that his mind was also on some other concerns? You write about a moment when he's worried about a silver service not being up to scratch, for example. Absolutely. So the other thing I should have said about Maximilian is that although you would enjoy talking to him at a dinner party, it's very unlikely he would talk to you at a dinner party unless you are outrageously posh. He is, uh, is, is, is he's, a, he's what we would call a snob. He's someone who loves etiquette and the finer details of court. And he spends a lot of his time, um, in fact, on the voyage to Mexico, when you think you might be sort of going through the political and military history of the country or whatever it might be, writing a 600-page handwritten manual for the etiquette that will be observed at his court. And this goes down to minute detail about, you know, who is going to take his hat at particular ceremonies and things like that. Potentially, you know, critics would say not the most important detail that needed to be resolved, yet where the emperor's hat was going to be taken. So he's he's got that. He also, lo- I mean, he's someone who just loves um, landscape gardening uh, and interior decoration. Again, those not necessarily the skills required. So he spends a lot of time setting up his imperial residences, and again, with that financial problem, at great expense. He has an enormous um, civil list, the, the money that the Mexican state gives him to furnish these residences. And it's all beautiful, you know, sort of um, crystal, glass, et cetera, from, from, you know, likes of Venice and France, has to be shipped to Europe and then carried up to Mexico City on these enormous um, mule, um, mule trains. So that's that's something. And he spends, you know, this is what he's doing for day, sort of, when he should be reorganizing the finances. He's picking the furniture for his imperial residences. So he's, his character is not necessarily ideally suited to, to the position. The other thing is he is someone who procrastinates and prevaricates and he does not like to make a decision. He is the eternally setting up committees, kicking the, the can down the road. And in fact, Carlotta is much more decisive. And one of the things that, that, that Maximilian does, again, much to the, the neglect of his imperial government, is he goes on tour of his kingdom. Now, you could argue this is sensible, get to know the country, get to know the people, get to know the problems. But the fact is, the problems in Mexico City are so great that he should be sorting those out first. And in fact, his enemies call him a royal tourist, essentially someone who came to Mexico and just went, you know, went on sort of two, three months tours around the kingdom. Now, the plus side is that when he's away, Carlotta is ruling and she has a very different approach. She's very decisive, very determined. And what she wants, you know, she sees the problem clearly for what it is that, you know, we need to defeat Juarez and we need to sort out the finances. But ultimately, she is not the one making the, making the decisions and doing the main political interactions. And so there is a huge, what I suppose we just called today drift at the top of this government, which is beset by problems. Uh, and so he can, his, his, his character is quite ill-suited. I don't want to be too hard on him, though. So to give the flip side to that, um, he, has, he was a very competent naval officer, much loved by many people who served in the Austrian Navy. And despite the fact that most people said, well, you're too young and you've just got the job because your brother's emperor, he, he won those people around. And in Mexico, he do, he's, he does, he's very successful. At, when he meets people, he charms them, he's charismatic. 
And he brings over, actually, a lot of people who fought, you know, physically fought on the battlefield against the French intervention, come to serve in his administration after meeting with him, talking through his ideas and what his future is for Mexico. So he's someone who, he's not, he's, 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 there are many reasons why he's not ideally suited, but he's not completely incompetent. And he's certainly not without success in bringing high profile converts, people who supported Juarez, who are now working at the top of his administration for him. Right. Well, that's a really interesting factor, isn't it? Because the policies that he does pursue, um, they, they they sound fairly progressive, and so he wins over that sort of, those sort of more liberal people. But he's been installed by um, people who have a conservative agenda potentially. What's the what happens there? Absolutely. So it, 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 I feel like problem is is a word that I'm using a lot. Another problem is you're absolutely right. So the conservatives who dreamed this up, the whole point of having a European monarch was to overturn those liberal and secular reforms that Juarez implemented and fought for in the civil war, and particularly the attacks on the Catholic church. Maximilian has no interest in that kind of reactionary conservatism. Uh, he's, he's a moderate liberal, I wouldn't go too far, like he's not a radical, but he does absolutely, so in, you've got to understand the context as well. So the Mexican context is very different to the European context. In, the, in Europe, that separation of church and state that's existed in France after the revolution is, is not, I mean, it doesn't exist everywhere in Europe, of course, it's not, but it's in that, in Western Europe, um, well, in France, it's just to play it safe. It's not, as, it's not that controversial. So for Maximilian, he doesn't, he doesn't quite understand why they won't just accept his, his, his liberalism. But they, as I say, they've brought this guy over to, to rule in the name of the Catholic Church and it's to create you know, a, a, a monarchy not particularly constitutional, much more autocratic. Now, it never becomes a constitutional monarchy because the situation never allows it to. But Maximilian, as you say, he's got liberal sympathies and he very quickly, much to the absolute horror of his conservative allies, confirms many of Poirot's reforms, including the nationalisation of church property. Within six months, that happens. He, he tries to negotiate a deal with the Pope so that the Pope will back it. And then, of course, if the Pope backs it in a concordat, much like Napoleon I had, then the Catholics will have to back it because it's papally it's sanctified. The Pope doesn't do that, um, and, but Maximilian does it unilaterally, thereby alienating the very support base that brought him to Mexico in the first place. So it's it's um, it's really it, that's that's I mean it was a, it was a shock to conservatives having you know done, you know waited all of this time for a monarch and to have their policies overturned, and it would have been a sensible policy had there not been civil war raging in Mexico potentially because as I say there are high profile con- converts to the cause and many liberals think well a, a, a monarchy that does eventually become constitutional that backs Paris's reforms and has this European guarantor of France might be much more stable and might be able to oppose further US expansion. No one believes that US expansion has ended in the 1850s and 60s. It's only afterwards that that becomes apparent. So so Mexicans do do serve in the regime and some do support it. But the problem is you've still got Benito Juarez, who, remember, is a hero of the Civil War, who's defeated the forces of conservatism and has defeated the French army in the Battle of Puebla, or at least his army has, who maintains this heroic resistance. So for people... Who are who are who are who have you know strong liberal convictions, strong Republican convictions? It doesn't matter how liberal Maximilian is. It's, it, 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 he needs to, he needs to win that 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 conflict first before he perhaps embarks on these ambitious reforms. You know, he does all kinds of things like uh, on education and create an Imperial Academy of Arts and Sciences. And you get these increasingly exasperated letters from the French French Foreign Ministry and Napoleon III saying, you know, it's so wonderful that, you know, you're focusing on education, but the political, military and financial state of the country is in disarray. 
what are you going to do about it? Um, and the answer is, is initially very little. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She thinks that Napoleon III is trying to assassinate her through poison. And that her entourage, so her ladies-in-waiting, politicians who've come with her on this mission from Mexico, are in the pay of Napoleon III uh, and are trying to murder her. And this all comes to an extraordinary denouement in the, um, in the Vatican. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And, and without skipping over too much of, of Maximilian's um, time, uh, in 1865, there does come a turning point where this this French imperial support he's received. What what happens to it? Absolutely. Well, as I said, they're already exasperated. I mean, you can imagine the sort of receipts receiving the mail in, in Paris in the foreign. When you read through the correspondence, and you can you can imagine when the sort of Mexican mail comes, the sort of sort of uh, weariness that um, that you know Napoleon III and his ministers have when when they're reading it, because they can see that the project that they've backed, you know, an enormous expense in terms of men and money, is is not going the way that they want it to, it's not consolidating. And that 1865 context, again, is key because, of course, in 1865, the American Civil War ends, the Confederacy surrenders uh, in April um, of that year. And so Washington is no longer shackled to um, that context, that fear of French intervention in, in its own conflict. Now, actually, in 1865, this is the territorial height of the, of the Mexican Empire. Juarez's forces have been dwindling. He, some of his closest politicians even ask him to resign in, um, because they think that he has no chance against the combined forces of imperialistas, Maximilian supporters, and the French army. He's been pushed northwards. He's in Chihuahua, the northernmost state of, of, of Mexico set up his capital there. And actually the French army is the French general who launches what he says will be the last act of the Mexican war, which is what he calls the conflict. And he marches 600 kilometers 
to this capital. Uh, and then on the 15th of August, which happens to be the birthday of the first emperor Napoleon, he writes a letter saying, I'm seated in the presidential armchair of President Juarez. And, you know, this, the Mexican war is over. Well, it's not over. Juarez has just retreated again. Now, this is the last retreat he can make. He's retreated to the U.S. border, a place called Paso del Norte, today Ciudad Juarez for ob- obvious reasons. It's only a two-day march away. Uh, uh, the French general can be there. And um, the French have this idea um, that if you capture Juarez or you get him to leave Mexican territory, he renounces the presidency. They sort of see it a bit like chess. I, I think if Juarez had left captured, who knows? But if he'd left for the United States of America, I don't think he would have given up the insurgency. The French think he will. Um, but they're two days away from him. And it's at that moment that the general receives orders from the commander-in-chief in Mexico City saying, go no further. Why can he go no further? Napoleon III is absolutely terrified that if the French are on the border with the United States of America, there'll be a clash and there'll be war because the U.S. Civil War is over. Ulysses S. Grant, for example, a major Civil War hero of the Union and someone who later becomes president, is outraged about the French involvement in Mexico. He thinks it's an, he calls it an act of war against the United States of America. He says he doesn't consider the American Civil War finished till they're driven out. And these, these are very public statements. So Napoleon III um, is disillusioned with his man in Mexico and is also facing war with the United States if he continues there. So uh, Secretary of State William Seward, he uh, ramps up the diplomatic pressure now because there's nothing France can, they have no leverage. Uh, And by the end of the year, he says to Napoleon III, not directly, obviously, his representative in Paris, says, um, we desire two things, friendship with France, but you should know that there will be no friendship if you continue in Mexico with your troops, uh, essentially threatening war. And Napoleon III, at the same time, receives a letter from Maximilian saying, oh, um, by the way, you know, those payments for the French army in here, would it be okay if we just missed this one? Because there are things, I mean, I'm good for it, you know I am kind of thing. So Napoleon III has got a perfect pretext. He's, there's no way he's going to war with the United States over Mexico. It's a hugely unpopular policy in France. It's not understood. It's hard. What's the interest in having these troops there for so long, spending so much money? Maximilian doesn't seem to be consolidating his regime, and now there's going to be war. So in January of 1866, he announces to the French National Assembly, good news, Mexico is pacified, the regime is consolidated, our work is done, we can leave. Now, of course, that's just for public consumption. And this is, you know, I mean, it's not dissimilar to foreign interventions in the 20th and 21st century. I think we've all had those moments uh, from politicians where they said the, you know, objectives achieved, country secure. Now, he, he, to give Maximilian a chance, he does what he, a phase withdrawal. First, the first plan is that French troops will not leave until the end of 1867. Now, quickly realises that's too dangerous because if you've got a small force of French troops in Mexico, which are... are, are despite what he's told people, is certainly not uh, in a state of peace, then they could be cut off. So he says uh, he, that actually changes and, and they're going to be gone within about 15 months. So he's been forced to withdraw his troops, partially, and his first and foremost should always have the resistance of Juarez, but also the, the, the diplomatic context of US pressure and Maximilian's only inability to, to meet those payments. Maximilian is clearly then in a sticky spot. He's um, knowing that he hasn't got this uh, backing anymore. Um, what is the situation for him and Carlotta there? Right. Well, when Maximilian hears the news um, that the French are leaving, he says, well, fine. You know, he's still quite petulant. He said, fine, I'll abdicate them if you don't want me here. Um, and he decides to abdicate. So all of this, this time, this money, etc., he's, he's going to leave um, because he thinks that the regime cannot sustain itself without the meaningful support of France. 
He tells Carlotta this, and she goes apoplectic. Now, Carlotta, her on her mother's side, um, is descended from the, the kings and queens of France. So her, her grandfather was Louis-Philippe. Louis-Philippe was king of the French, and in 1848, there was a, one of the periodic revolutions in France, and he abdicates in the face of that revolution. Carlotta thought that this abdication, which obviously Louis-Philippe did to, to save the life of himself and potentially his family, she thought this was outrageous, shameful. She tells Maximilian that it ruined her family and that he will not abdicate, essentially, over, over my dead body. And she says, it's better that you die here in Mexico if there is, six, if there is still six feet of the emperor, you know, they'll be an emperor. Essentially, you know, you go down fighting. She says that even, you know, the, the abdication is cowardice, that it is um, uh, it's dishonorable. And she uses the phrase that he, king, even kings of the Middle Ages waited until someone took their kingdom away. Uh, you know, so she's, so she can't abdicate. And she's a very, you know, forceful personality. I, you can, um, you know, she writes a memorandum and you can read it and you can sort of, you get this, you know, I think I would have been shamed into not abdicating if, 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 if I'd received all of that. Not only that, though, she's got a solution. She says, look, I'll go to France. I will speak to Napoleon III and I will convince him to change his mind. Now, Napoleon III cajoled them to go there in the first place, right? Because it would have been a disaster to have created a monarchy and the monarch not to have gone. So he has at various points said, whatever happens, my support will never fail you. So they have this in writing. They have a letter from Napoleon III saying this will never happen. She thinks, I'll go to him. I'll show him this letter. I'll shame him into changing his mind. She, she, goes, she goes back um, to Paris. Now, Napoleon III tries to avoid this meeting, as you can well understand. No one wants to be reminded of their foreign policy mistakes and broken promises. He's eventually shamed into meeting her, and uh, he's, he breaks down into tears when he sees the letter. But he doesn't, you know, it's, it's, he's, his decision is made, um, and he doesn't change his mind. So Carlotta then has another mission, which is to go and speak to the Pope, try and rally Catholic support in Mexico and, and, and beyond for Maximilian's regime. But the enormity of, of the mission uh, impacts upon her mental health, which deteriorates rapidly. She's beginning to see Napoleon III, and again, she, she writes this down in letters to her husband, as literally the devil incarnate. She calls him the principle of evil upon this earth. She's beginning to have um, sort of apocalyptic, nightmarish dreams, and she also increasingly paranoid. She thinks that Napoleon III is trying to assassinate her through poison. And that her entourage, so her ladies-in-waiting, politicians who've come with her on this mission from Mexico, are in the pay of Napoleon III uh, and are trying to murder her. And this all comes to an extraordinary denouement in the, um, in the Vatican, in front of the Pope. So um, she actually, not on the first visit, that passes normally, but then um, she, is, she's, she demands to go for a drive early one morning. Um, she's very erratic behaviour. She, she looks, you know, she's sort of um, sweating and her eyes are kind of glistening. Demands to drive to the Vatican, goes in unannounced to, to see the Pope and in front of the Pope breaks down in uncontrollable uh, sobs and relating this story about how Napoleon III is trying to assassinate her. Now, I mean, this is not, the Pope's not trained for this kind of thing, but she eventually calms down, but refuses to leave the Vatican. She ends up spending the night there until eventually she's, she's sort of rather dramatically bundled off back to her hotel, still so terrified of poison that she'll only eat oranges that she's peeled herself and nuts. Uh, and then after that, she, there's one maid that she does trust and she insists on um, having live chickens in her room, which are then killed in front of her and then cooked so that she can see the whole process. Um, and even then, that she thinks that it's best to get a cat in as a taster. So you can see, I mean, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story. It's a very sad one as well. And she actually never fully recovers and, and never returns to Mexico. 
So um, meanwhile, back in, back in Mexico, Maximilian's got no idea of this. News, the transatlantic cable's actually just been laid, but it uh, only works. It's not working fantastically well. Most news is still by mail, takes four to six weeks, so he has no idea. He's renounced his liberal principles governing with the conservatives who said, look, if you, get, if you, if you back us, we will then back the empire wholeheartedly and we can keep you in power. And so he's actually quite optimistic, going from sort of dis- despair at the, when Napoleon III told him that he would withdraw his troops to optimism, his faith in Carlotta and in the Conservative Party. But when he receives news in October of that year that his wife has suffered this breakdown and that Napoleon III has not changed his mind, he once again resolves to abdicate. I mean, he's absolutely broken by the news uh, from Carlotta. It is, his, their relationship is interesting, but it's certainly found in a lot of mutual affection um, and support. She, she, she played a huge part in convincing him to go there, helped him govern Mexico, and of course, convinced him to stay. So without her, his world shatters, and he's increasingly isolated. He suffers from fevers. Uh, he suffers from what I think what we would call depression. It's always a risk to diagnose these things from the from, from the present. But he has whole days where he, uh, you know, a series of days where he is unable to act and it makes his procrastination and procrastination worse. He decides to abdicate again, but he brings his procrastination to that. So he goes to a town near Veracruz. He ships his furniture. He ships his personal archive. That all goes to Europe and his archive is in Europe to this day. But the Conservative Party know that if if the emperor goes, the empire collapses, Juarez is victorious, their own lives probably at risk, and of course their vision for Mexico. So they are chipping away at him day by day by day, saying, you know, we you know, we can raise tens of thousands of men. Catholic Mexico will rally. We can get millions of uh, millions of, of dollars uh, and to support you. So you know, don't 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 abdicate. Eventually, and a few other people chip in as well, he, he puts it to a vote. So this is his classic style with any decision right? he doesn't want to make. He, he outsources that to other people. He gets his ministers and advisors to this town near Veracruz and says, I want you to debate and vote on the future of the empire. He doesn't listen to that debate. He goes butterfly hunting, which is one of his preferred pursuits. When he gets back after a successful day's butterfly hunting, he discovers that his councillors have, in fact, voted for the empire to continue or at least that's what he thinks. In fact, it's uh, only about 10 have voted for it to continue indefinitely. Another 11 have voted for it to continue and then for a Congress to be set up, um, which would decide on the future of, of, of Mexican government, which in all likelihood Maximilian would lose. They think he would lose it. They just want a, a government to stay rather than the chaos that would happen if he just left. And two people votes against. So he sees this, oh, the majority have declared in, in favour of the empire. In fact, a majority have declared against the empire, really, he interprets it's, it's another way, um, to cut a long story short. And eventually, it's not until January of 1867, so he's away for three months from his capital while this, this sort of caricating about the future of the empire, um, and he returns to, to Mexico City. Right. Well, you just um, described a number of factors there that do sort of uh, snowball along. And while I was reading it, I was thinking, just abdicate, please just abdicate. And I wonder, you know, can we go into sort of the tragic ramifications? Because it really it, it really is a sad, sad end for Maximilian. Absolutely. I mean, as uh, hopefully readers are screaming exactly the same thing I was screaming uh, as writing it and when reading through, you know, the numerous documents is, you know, the, you know, the, the game is up. And it's, I suppose, all the more tragic that he does decide twice to abdicate and he's persuaded twice not to. So when he, by the time he returns to Mexico City in January of 1867, the empire is in full retreat on all fronts. Juaristas are advancing on all sides, from the north, from the west, from the south. 
The French army, um, so Napoleon III has also desperately been trying to persuade Maximilian to, to abdicate because he sees, if, if Maximilian leaves with the French army, Napoleon III can present it as well. He chose to go and we protected him and, you know, this is all good. So the French army has essentially come to an agreement with uh, the Juaristas uh, that they won't engage in any major in any major battles. Uh, if the Juaristas don't attack the French, the French won't attack the Juaristas. They'll just focus on their retreat. Uh, and so it, this is, of course, um, and it means that um, the Juaristas' fortunes are, are, are on the up and, and they're closing in on Mexico City. The, the, the French army as well, it's, it's, it's that classic thing of withdrawing army. Um, they can't leave their artillery there because they're worried that that artillery will fall into the hands of Juaristas. And of course, losing your guns is you know, humiliation. So they're spiking their guns, they're blowing up their gunpowder. They, you know, they're doing very little to help um, Maximilian and his Imperialista army, which is, which, is, which is very small. He's got very few resources. Uh, and, he, and many of those resources, he's still paying what money he does have. About half of it is going to the French still. Um, even though that they're about to abandon him. So the situation is bleak. A last desperate plan is concocted by um, the conservative generals who surround him. They believe that if Maximilian personally leads the army, free from foreign interference, so they can no longer say he's backed by French troops, and wins a victory over the Juarista armies, then uh, the fortunes will, will magically change, right? So the people will rally to, uh, to Maximilian. So in February um, of 1867, Maximilian is convinced to, to do this, and he um, makes his way um, to a town um, about 130 miles northwest of Mexico called Queretaro. Now, this is an imperial stronghold. It's deeply Catholic, and um, there are imperialist forces already there who are, who are worried about being besieged by the encroaching Juaristas. Maximilian does not, you know, this is not the cavalry riding to the rescue. He's got a ragtag band of about 1,500 soldiers they've managed to scrape together pretty much literally off the streets of Mexico City. They, they you know, they're not, they don't have uniforms, they're poorly armed, and, you know, very furious other imperialistas that they've managed to, to get together. It should be pointed out that Maximilian has never commanded an army. He's not even served in an army. He was a naval officer. Uh, and now suddenly he's been he's been put at the head of what remains of the imperial army. And when they get to um, Queretaro, they manage to cobble together about 9,000 now. So when Maximilian's forces join some of the imperialist armies that have been fighting in the field, they've got a fairly decent fighting force. You know, some of them are veterans, been fighting for a long time. But they're hugely outnumbered by the liberals who are who are approaching them. Possibly once the three armies of the, of the liberal commanders converge, probably about thirty thousand, maybe by the end of um, uh, forty thousand. And once again, Maximilian is paralysed by indecision. So there are there is a plan. You you you, you attack the armies individually, and um, you know that's that's the way you do this. He doesn't. He prevaricates. They put the city under siege. It's a terrible spot for a siege. Um, it's the aqueduct that brings fresh water in. It's quickly cut off. They have no little money. They don't have many provisions. Uh, Maxim, you know, I mean, Maximilian was someone who was obsessed by honour. He would have seen this final stand as honourable, and it is. He's brave. He leads the troops, often from the front. Often there, um, you know, there are sort of bullets whistling around him as he tours tours the town and tries to revive the army spirits, etc. But ultimately, it's futile. I mean, the numbers are just overwhelming. And of course, it's very, they control very little of the rest of Mexico. Mexico City is still held by imperialistas, Veracruz, and one or two other towns. That's it. I mean, the, the game is up. The siege is, is long. He holds out, I think it's 70 days, 71 days. Um, and eventually, he's betrayed uh, by one of his closest officers who um, goes into the Republican line, liberal lines, um, one night and um, leads them back that very morning into the imperialist the citadel, the very place where Maximilian is. Um, it's a very bizarre incident where um, the, the commanding officer of those uh, Juarista troops 
sees Maximilian uh, but doesn't arrest him because he thinks it would be dishonorable to arrest Maximilian after he's been deceived. And so Maximilian goes to a hill just over, overlooking the town to make one final stand. But as he overlooks the town, he sees the, the, the liberal armies swarming in, his soldiers, um, what remain of them, surrendering. And he himself surrenders um, uh, eventually to the um, to the Juaristas and is taken prisoner. Now, he would have had fairly high hopes that um, that he, he certainly did hope that um, he's, that he would renounce the, the, the empire and that he would be allowed to, to return to Austria in exile. But um, Juarez is um, determined to bring this conflict to an end. And if you think of the, the, the first civil war we talked about right in the beginning, that breaks out in 1858. Really, there's been continuous infighting in Mexico for nine years over this issue between liberals and conservatives and the future of Mexico, of which Maximilian has kind of stumbled into and not fully understood. And it's partially, you can sort of see that because Juarez is not going to let, let him off, off lightly. There's going to be a trial. That trial is going to be a court-martial, a military trial, not, not a civilian trial. And it's, it, it's a foregone conclusion. It's actually held in, uh, in a theatre, uh, and which is sort of symbolic of its political theatre. And that theatre is named after the first emperor of Mexico, um, who way back in 1822 was emperor, and who was also shot. So it would be no surprise um, that, that it just takes two days to deliberate uh, on the, Maximilian's fate. The verdict comes in. It's, um, it's, it's he's to be executed by firing squad. Uh, there were sort of one or two farcical attempts to, to break him out of jail, where again his prevarication comes in and he says, oh, "Well, we'll just do it tomorrow. We don't need to break out today." And of course, the, you know, the, plot, the plot is uncovered and the guards travelled. And he's he's he, you know he's despite the pleas of the courts of Europe, perhaps more influentially the United States of America, um, Seward Secretary of State, and. Republicans like Giuseppe Garibaldi in Italy and uh, Victor Hugo in France, they all write letters pleading for clemency. Juarez is determined that this conflict ends um, and he's executed alongside two generals who stood with him to the end, but much more importantly, actually, is that they're leaders of the Conservative Party. Um, Juarez is not going to let them off. And he's executed overlooking the very hill, sorry, right, on the very hill overlooking uh, the town, um, which had been the site of his last stand against the Juaristas on the 19th of uh, June 1867. Um, and as you mentioned, there are um, intervention attempts from a number of powers. Um, so what are the ramifications for um, uh, Juarez, for the geopolitical dynamic of, of Mexico and the rest of the world? Mm. Well, in, in Mexico, it does end the civil war and it is the defeat of of the of the conservative party and the type of conservative politics that you'd seen in 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 the in the fifties and sixties as a, as a meaningful entity, so from that point of view, short term, Juarez, it's a it is a complete victory, uh, and it's also you know becomes one of the foundational myths and moments of Mexican history because independence had had been been contested and the decades afterwards, as we discussed, had had been far from um, glorious, or, uh, and so. Um, this is a moment around which Mexicans to this very day, uh, you know, it's, it's rightly front and centre of their history because of the extraordinary resistance that, that Juarez put not only to defeat the conservatives, but to defeat, you know, the forces of French imperialism uh, and, of course, you know, a, a, a Habsburg with all of the resources of Europe that he was able to draw on. So it goes down in Mexican history as a seminal uh, and a triumphal moment. Unfortunately, it doesn't usher in an age of, um, of, of, of stable liberal democracy 
in Mexico, it very quickly um, breaks down. Uh, Juarez um, dies in 1872, and, and his election in 1871 is contested, uh, and some of his his generals essentially begin to fight over power. It results in a guy called Porfirio Diaz, who, one of the leading Juarista generals, uh, ends up creating a what is often referred to as a liberal dictatorship, which sounds something in some even oxymoron. It's in the sense that its policies are liberal and secular, but its attitude to the democracy is um, less than, to, to put it mildly. So um, that's the situation in Mexico. As far as is its ramifications beyond Mexico, uh, it's, it's, one, it's very quickly forgotten it, 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 outside of Mexico. In France, it's, it's, it was seen at the time as a, as, a, as, a, as a failure and a sort of stepping stone on the road to the, to the Franco-Prussian War, i.e. another foreign policy mistake of Napoleon III, once Napoleon III is defeated in France, um, you know, a black legend arises around the French Second Empire. Is this the, the famous Marx quote is um, the first time is tragedy, the second time is farce, referring to Louis Napoleon's coup and his and really to come to the epitaph for his regime. So Mexico is subsumed um, in, in, in that and, and buried. It does, it does on a geopolitical level mark the end of meaningful European attempts to uh, influence in, in that same style, at least, Latin American politics. And you could see it as a, as a moment of, tran- of uh, as marking that moment of transition to US dominance in, 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 in the Americas. Um, then, you know, I mean, this is an outrageous challenge to US child power. It was always conceived as such, but Napoleon III was merely opportunity, afforded the opportunity to witness firsthand just how powerful the United States of America had become. And, and you know, absolutely no way would it contemplate a military victory. So it's a, in that sense, it, it's it's a marker. But outside of um, Mexico, it's a story that, that very quickly becomes um, forgotten, I would say. And so how um, would you like to see this moment, you know, a hallmark one in Mexican history still, but perhaps forgotten elsewhere? How would you like to see it um, viewed in today's context? Well, I think I mean, it's well. One, one. I think one important lesson is don't try and found a monarchy uh, in in a faraway country. That's a, that's a useful, useful uh, didactic moment, teachable moment for, for for anyone thinking about that. But um, but more, I mean, more seriously, I suppose what you can say is that it, it pertinent to our present days. You think about it, it, interventions in places like Iraq or Afghanistan. Many of the problems that um, that Maximilian uh, faced and the French and, uh, and and the supporters on the ground, because you know it's in, one of the things that that does happen in Mexican history is that it's told as a very simple tale, almost a Manichaean tale of good and evil. There were Mexicans who supported the imperialist regime. They served as its ministers. They served in its armies. Um, and they um, and so you know the the, the, the you, you those the, there are a lot of refugees from this period as well, and that of course has resonance resonance with today. So it's that that sort of attempt. I mean, I guess today would be called nation building and regime change. I mean, these things are all present in in the 1860s Mexico and in Napoleon III's plan. And you know, one doesn't want to ascribe too much uh, positivity but to a, a gracious example of European imperialism. And it is, it is outrageous. But as you say, if you look at Maximilian was uh, someone who thought that he was acting in the interest of Mexican people. I mean, and of course, everyone, every, everyone says that. But it shows, I suppose, the danger of, of good intentions, um, um, even if, um, you know, when tied to this kind of, 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 of imperialism. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, in that context of, of foreign interventions, it's another example of, of how they very rarely have ever worked. 
That was Edward Shawcross. The Last Emperor of Mexico, A Disaster in the New World, is published by Faber and Faber in the UK and Basic Books in the US and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. (laughs) 